Welcome to the Freedom Machine podcast. Two lawyers, both lovers of cycling with different passions. Andrew is moved by road biking, group riding, and the latest technology. Joe's interests lie in e-bikes, commuting, and getting people out of cars and onto bikes. They are partners in the law firm of Cass and Moses, the nation's bicycle accident law firm. And I'm your host, Fred Mullins, a person who enjoys the freedom of the open road you only get on a bicycle. Now let's get into the show. All right. Okay. So, Andrew, uh, let's uh, start off with you today. And I think you were going to share with us... Uh, some gear picks. You've got a new gear pick. Yeah, today I'm going to do, you know, the gear, the, the route, and the ride. The gear today is it's going to sound simple on its face, but it's actually somewhat innovative. Uh, Look, who was actually uh, the company Look, who actually invented clipless pedals that most uh, road bikers and mountain bikers use today, uh, came up with a new pedal called the Geo Grip, uh, the Geo City Grip Vision which they teamed up with Vibram to kind of make a pedal that's super grippy and it's got these sort of rubber inserts. Uh, what, what kind of makes them unique is that one is they're not clipless, which is a unique for uh, look, but also they have built-in LED lights, uh, which, you know, I don't really see that often in pedals and it's kind of an ingenious idea. Uh, they have these, pedal, these lights that sort of magnetically kind of clip into the pedal uh, so you could just charge them and then they could either blink or be straight. And, you know, I, I as, a, as somebody that's on the road a lot, uh, I definitely like the idea and I ride often at dawn to have the ability to have lights on a pedal. Cars can yeah. kind of see the pedal go up and down. They can kind of sense that that's a bike in front of them. So I thought that was pretty uh, interesting. They're not cheap, though. Uh, if you want the pedals with the lights, they're one hundred and forty dollars uh, and they do make them without the lights for seventy dollars. So. It's an interesting uh, take on it. One of their thoughts was was that there's a lot more commuters and a lot more e-bike riders, okay. and they wanted the ability to track that market. So what they did is they actually sell the lights themselves individually, and you could they actually will adapt to their other pedal lines. They also have a like a hybrid you know pedal where you could have sort of clicking on one side and be flat on the other side, and those will click on there well. So I think it's you can know. You, can you fill me in on that? I uh, just this morning I was riding it's as you know I'm trying to commute throughout the winter this year and it's getting really dark and what are we September 8 17 18 18 and it was dark when I started I was thinking I want these these lights so bad on my pedals I have lights all over but the lights on the pedals I think would be fantastic because, you know, well, as you know, it's obvious they're moving up and down. I mean, you just cannot mistake that for a bicycle. You know, you, you know, that's a bicycle on the road. So, Andrew, you are saying I could get just the lights and put them on my existing pedals without spending one hundred and forty dollars. No, not not unless you have look pedals. So they're, they're, they're oh. clicking with the other look pedals. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if there was like an aftermarket product out there that would would work with lights. But I think the tricky part is to make them magnetic so they're easy to get on and off, but yet stable so you don't lose them. You know, so I think they kind of click in pretty good. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see how well they sell. They're all pretty new. So, you know, I think it's something to consider if you're, if you're, if you're a commuter. Once again, like, like a lot of biking stuff, it's not cheap. But, you know, can you put a price on safety? Yeah, I'm completely into it, but I don't <laughs> want to spend $140 on it. On a couple of lights. I think that's, you know, I, a lot of people feel that way. You know, I think sometimes uh, you're penny wise and pound foolish because the bottom line is, is that sometimes you need to spend money if you're going to use something on a daily basis for the ease of use. You can get something cheaper, 
and it might not be as easy to pop in and out or to charge or have the same. Um, it might not be LED or it could be something cheaper. So no, I have I, it. I, I kind I, of. My know. light setup right now is made for that because I got all these. It's it's all I got lights all over the place, but they don't stay on, and then they don't stay in the direction I put them. You know, it's a, it's a whole big mess just for that very reason. All right. Well, let's talk about not riding in the road and getting onto the route. Uh, yeah, this you know, week's route is off. Uh, just to chip in once, uh, Fred, what you said the sure. one thing I have learned uh, the longer I seem to live is, uh, you know, you pay twice if you if you get something cheap. You know. Yep. So often that this happened. The route is really exciting. This is the Gap Trail. Many people probably heard of it. Some of them have not heard of it. So I wanted to make sure that everybody hears about this. Uh, you know, this is a, a, a path that was designed to go from Cumberland, Maryland to Pittsburgh. Uh, and it's 150 miles long of basically car-free riding, uh, all on sort of limestone paths or dirt paths, but, you know, hard paved paths. And it's a Really, really uh, great, uh, well thought out path trail, and you can go to gaptrail.org. G A P T R A I L dot org. We'll give you just a lot of information, but you know, from the looks of it, from what I hear about it, it's absolutely beautiful. It's very COVID friendly, uh, and there's a lot of there's a lot of outfits there that will help you do this ride. It's about you know 150 miles, but it's a slow you know it's slow riding. It's about average riders probably gonna go about 12 miles an hour so you could plan on about four days to do this path uh interestingly is there's 13 towns in this 150 miles so there's a lot of opportunities if you got to stop to get some water or get a bike repair and amtrak will go back and forth on this route so you can go one way and just take a train back uh so pretty exciting you know it might be difficult for me in my situation with my young kids but Definitely something I want to do at some point. And then if you're feeling adventurous, you can continue on to the CNO path uh, and go all the way to DC. So I think that's a uh, pretty, pretty exciting bet. Right. Yeah. The great how how long is the, the CNO path? That is about another 150 miles. Okay. The go great ahead, Allegheny passage. Did I say it wrong? No, you didn't say it at all. Okay. I just want to say that <laughs> okay. it, it's the Gap Trail. G-A-P stands for Great Allegheny oh. Passage. Thank you. Uh, and no it's, you know, it, it's relatively new. You know, I think it only rolled out about 2014. Uh, so, you know, it has been beaten down too much. And if you look at some, if you go to the website and you see some of these pictures, you'll be surprised on the, sort of the diversity of pictures. And a lot of people will not just ride there's whitewater rafting at one of the stops and there's a lot of different hiking you can do so it's kind of a pretty pretty great ride yeah i am really interested in doing this one as well especially covid uh it's close enough i start in chicago it's close enough to get over to pittsburgh to take the train back up to pittsburgh to catch up with my car or airplane mm -hmm. or however i'm going to get over there and it's uh it looks like the fall i looked online and it looks like the fall is just gorgeous there you know and joe as you know has the electric bike and and it's it's you know great riding for an electric bike carry a lot of gear uh and and really you know just camp the whole way as well mm -hmm. so uh you know don't want to spend too much time beating a dead horse no pun intended but i, I do think that's something to check out that would be. And then you'd actually have the perfect bike for it if you talked about uh, the, our next topic, the ride. 
Yeah, the ride, you know, you know, I, today we're going to kind of highlight the Canada, the Cannondale Topstone left Oliver. Now, Topstone is a gravel is a gravel bike that made a lot of big news even last year when they redesigned their, their bike and came up with a really interesting uh, way of having a suspension. Now, I'm not an engineer, so I can't go too technical on it, but it, it had the ability to have you know, first of all, let's be clear. When we say when we say gravel bike, we don't really mean gravel. You know, gravel is really just a term that means any road. So think of, you know, dirt, limestone, rocks, you know, pretty much anything. And, and what's great about that bike is it had the clearance for very wide tires. So you could take it on pretty aggressive gravel type of rides. But you could also take it as a road bike. In fact, I ride with a guy that uses it almost exclusively as a road bike. He just put, you know, thinner tires on it. So it's pretty, it's pretty uh, useful. And then what they went ahead and did is they, this year they came up and they introduced a front, I, I want to call it a fork, but it's not really a fork. The front fork of the bike, they call it the left Oliver. It's not technically a fork because it's only one side. So it's called like a shaft or something technically. I've seen but it before. They've had this proprietary sort of shock technology since 2000 and it's and used mostly for like cross bike and excess XC kind of riding and it's extremely extremely stiff and very unique looking where it looks like it's only one side of the wheel is kind of uh is being covered by the shaft but what makes this unique is it's tunable so you can make this bike uh super super stiff you know or you can give it a lot more shock and do Basically, this bike will truly go from road all the way to mountain biking, where normally a gravel bike doesn't really get you to mountain biking. It gets you as close, you know, close to it, but not quite there. Um, so, do we have any idea why it has this left fork? The structure. Well, that, it's that, so cool looking, but I don't understand it at all structurally. It, you know, from what I from what I read about that, it, it was it's always been a sort of proprietary, controversial thing that Catadale does that none of the other companies really either they maybe were not legally allowed to or now have never really mimicked, but it was kind of used to be extremely stiff. So I'm not really sure, but it's been around for a long time. I mean, it's been around 20 years uh, and they call it the one-legged mountain bike. Fred, you said you've seen these in the wild? Yes, I have seen these in the wild. It's, 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 it's something to see. Uh, seeing the one strut on the front uh, because you're just so used to riding with a fork. And I think I even talked to the guy and he said, you have to get used to that. Like you, your brain has to get around that you're not missing, you know, your front fork. Yeah. yeah you so. got to strut your stuff. You know, I, I, I think I, personally for me, and there's other examples of this in the biking world, when, when somebody does something that just looks so out of the norm it's mm. a very love it or hate it kind of thing. I mean, I could think of Canyon on their, on their grail, um, you know, gravel bike. They had like a weird double handlebar where there's like a, like a bottom and a top to it. And, okay, yep. you know, it just looks really stupid. Now, from an engineering standpoint, it's probably great. But I, my guess is bikers generally don't want it just to function well, but they want it to look great too. And so sometimes people won't simply do some function over form you know i mean i could be wrong what's your, what's your thoughts on that i mean would you write something that looks stupid but performs a lot better sure i'm sure you would i definitely yes <laughs> <laughs> with pride you go out of your way to probably do that uh, 
I mean, and there's something to be said for that. You know, of course, you know. I like the idea of uh, the fact that it's completely tool-free to remove the front tire. So yeah. uh, that's always one of those things where if I don't have to remove the tires, I prefer not to remove the tires. Uh, but with this, it seems like you could just pop it on and pop it off. You could throw it in the back of your car. You could. It makes the bike a little bit more um, easy of use to get it from point A to point B. Right. And, and, and that's one of the advantages, too, right, of not having a, on, a fork on both sides. Right. You know, I, I suppose. Are there, are there racks? Aren't there racks that you have to suspend it on the fork? Like maybe you even know, the garage it, where you it would a be hook nothing, in the garage? I don't think there would be anything that you would be suspending it by the. Well, actually, that's uh, not true. You're right. There is there are fork mounts where you can take off the back tire and then just put the front fork into something. But I think with this, you don't even, once you, once you can take off the wheel, but you're right. There are, there are, I actually have a. Well, you know, to me, it's interesting is I don't know that you even need to take the wheel off to change a tire. I mean, you can get, you can get to completely one side of that, of that wheel. I think you could swap out a tube without even taking the wheel off, which I think would be pretty, that would be pretty cool. So we we digress. Just like yeah. all of the of the ride conversations, these could be a podcast in and of themselves. And this bike is cheap oh. too. It's only seventy five hundred dollars. So oh, that's good. That's good. I thought I thought the one thing I I thought that was interesting about the uh, Topstone line was that they had kind of an entry level, so you could get all the way up to the seventy five hundred, but you could start at but right about a grand, right? To get into uh Yeah, that's right. The Substone 4, you could start for a thousand bucks. And that's interesting. That's about the price point of all the, of the sort of beginner gravel bikes, well, the entry level for all the companies. Yep. They all started about a thousand for something. And I think they're all decent. You know, I mean, obviously technology is changing all the time, you know. So in a nutshell, is your, is your recommendation of this bike, assuming you want to spend the money because it can do all things. You can make it stiff enough for the road and bouncy enough, so to speak, for for gravel or even some some hills. Yeah, I think I think if you're some you're somebody that's buying this bike, you probably have other bikes. But I, I think that this bike would be would lean a lot more towards the gravel and the mountain biking than the road. You know, so I, I think for somebody that's really got a dedicated road bike, this will probably cover you know two bikes, in my opinion. Well, let's let's move on to the next thing, yeah. which is the fact that you probably can't get your hands on this bike anyway right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. So it, it's kind of funny. Uh, biking success, it's also the reason why I'm seeing a lot more people on the road and on trails and on every place else going. Um, and which is great because I want to see that. But then I also don't want to be sharing the roads and the trails with too many other people, I guess, is that's just my own selfish uh, point with biking. Anyway, so Joe, what were you going to, you, you have some information on the, uh, the Corona bike boom that we're kind of living through right now. Yeah, so uh, admittedly, this can be a little bit all over the map. I have a thesis, but I don't really know um, if it's, I don't know what to make of it. So, so okay. let's dive in. So uh, I wanted to talk about the Corona bike boom. I think everybody knows that. Uh, a lot more people are getting on bikes. You can't get your hands on a bike. Uh, my question is, is it, a, is it a permanent blessing in disguise uh, or is it a fleeting moment in time? So last week we discussed this, the safety of riding in groups and we touched on the bicycle boom uh, again in that way. But this week I want to take the conversation a step further. 
is the COVID shutdown what society needed to battle the climate crisis with bicycles. So is this, is this bike boom going to be what we need the jump start. climate change? Yeah, to, to jumpstart the climate challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it a paradigm shift uh, or are we just going to have a summer of heavy riding? So let me I, ask you, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Like, are, are, I'm a little confused. Are you trying to say, is there a silver lining to the COVID? That yes, is- that's what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm asking, at least. Is this, is this a, um, is it temporary? Is it permanent? Is it just what we need as a society? Is it a cleansing experience? Interesting. Interesting. Because the logical extension of this argument is that we're saving lives by COVID. Yeah. I, I reluctantly say that. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I understand this argument's going to be vulnerable to that. So, you know, let me dive in for a minute and just set the stage and then let's discuss that. Um, because again, there, I guess there's two questions. One is, is it here to stay? Uh, is this boom here to stay? And number two is, again, is it going to accomplish maybe what we need as a society? So um, in terms of is it here to stay, is, you know, I did some research. In the 70s was the last bike boom. and During the oil huge, crisis? It was, it was early oil crisis. It was the environmental movement, it was early 1970s. It was when, uh, you know, people were going to change the world, beginning of Earth Day, ecological movement, and so on. But it died off really quickly. Um, I don't know if that was, uh, you know, industry, the car industry that made it die off, or if it just didn't have the staying power. That's one of the reasons I asked the question today. Um, the... You know, it's obviously in terms of, of climate, as we're talking, the West Coast is literally on fire. Um, Portland, San Francisco, L.A., they all have this Mars-like orange sky. Um, and that means we're at, the, at, at a tipping point, in my opinion. So what I've seen around the world, though, is that not only are, are, is the bicycle market booming, but all of this temporary infrastructure all over the world. So there's, you know, uh, just a little research, Bogota, Mexico City, uh, London, Mumbai, uh, they're increasing their bike lanes on a temporary basis with, you know, cones and markers and setting up huge goals. Uh, And so worldwide, since the pandemic, uh, Andrew asked me when I talked to him about this, whether this is a lot or a little bit, 2,000 kilometers of new cycle lanes have been announced since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, put in a distance, that's like a cycle lane from London to Rome and obviously back again. So, um, so my, you know, my argument is in terms of here to stay, I think it's going to not be like the 70s. It's going it, to stay. Uh, and the reason why is because we're changing infrastructure. I would also say I think it's going to stay because you're getting buy-in from the youth. Uh, People, uh, kids now, uh, or at least I know this with my teenagers, there are some kids that aren't nearly as hell-bent on getting a license as when I was growing up. And there are plenty of people now who, who don't have a car if they live in the city. And then they're also taking advantage of other things uh, when they live in the cities, like a lot of cities now have bike shares. 
which I would have taken advantage of 20 years ago because my office, my uh, work was, was two miles away from my home. And I take public transportation there in the morning, but sometimes I'd walk home in the afternoon. If I had a bike share, I'd probably would have taken a bike share in and a bike share back. Uh, it just gives you more flexibility. So I think I, I'm hoping that it's not going to be like the 70s and it's going to last a little bit longer. I, I have a feeling Andrew's just not buying into this. Andrew, what do you think? Well, you know, I'm somewhat hopeful because I agree that there's there's been a little more infrastructure before this happened. So it wasn't like this is just the beginning of people getting back on bikes again. Um, but, you know, you have to go back to the 70s and say, well, why did it change? Why did it go back? Probably because oil got cheap. Right. You know, and what happened when oil got cheap? Oil companies have a lot of influence, right? And mm -hmm. people went back on bikes. The question now is the COVID will go away. So to me, that's the, that's the analogy. Is COVID going the way the same as oil getting cheap? And, and Well, my argument is, and again, that's why I go to the infrastructure. I think all three of us agree that when, when the infrastructure is there and people can be comfortable riding, they're going to make it part of their daily lives and their daily setup, have one car instead of two, combine it you know, with the last mile and so on. And I mm -hmm. think that the, the, ride, the, the bike shares or the, the bike rentals, which now even have electric bikes, mm -hmm. uh, and the lanes, I think that's what's going to make it permanent. I, I, I agree, but I think, and I think, Joe, you suggested this once to me before. I think not just that, but there might be a permanent shift on how people work. And when all of a sudden a lot of people don't actually go back to the office, they realize we're not really using both cars anymore. So mm -hmm. their lifestyles have changed. And if their lifestyle changes, there's a lot of things pointing in the right direction. You know, you look at, you look at the Netherlands, you look at Amsterdam, the people there did not ask for bikes. Before the 70s, they, almost, they were similar to Chicago and New York. They didn't have people biking. They changed infrastructure first, and then the people came. You know, they said, we're going to change the structure. The infrastructure and then once as soon as you do that people would just take the the path of least resistance they take they take what's best for them they don't even have to well the path of least resistance or the other way i like to look at it is lowering the barrier of entry the easier you make it the more enjoyable you make it the more likely someone's going to take advantage of it uh like bike paths like you know and the other safety. thing is is giving people i think one thing about COVID is it's giving people we talked about this last time or, or one time we talked previously about just the, I mean, the name of the podcast is the freedom machine and the freedom that you get riding a bike, you know, on two wheels, just getting out, being able to go human powered, all that stuff. The fact is, I also think people are kind of having a renaissance because they're like, I remember riding a bike as a kid. This is really fun going out with my family and my kids and you know, I agree. And you know, if, if I asked a non biker before, you know, COVID and before this, what their probably number one reason of not going on a bike was or their concern, most of the time they'd say safety. They'd say it's just too dangerous mm -hmm. to be on the roads. So, and that gets infrastructure, you know, you know, if they're, if they feel safe, they'll go on the road and Joe commutes, but he spends a lot of energy being safe, you know, yeah. finding bike paths that work for him, not being with the road. Now you look at John flashing pedals. You look at, and as you guys might or may not know, I'm a league cycling instructor. When I was taught my skills for, to teach bike safety. Uh, if you're you playing know, the drinking game at home, folks, every time Andrew mentions that, you can take a shot. Uh, <laughs> that, that at least happens. You can all, you always as get at least you know, one drink. A, and usually. 
You're I'm a bike expert. More. I am a bike <laughs> expert in safety. So I think I get the final word here. But, but you know, John Forrester, sort of the godfather of bike safety and still is in the United States, really pre- did not preach infrastructure. He preached bikes should be treated like regular automobiles and dry- bikes should go with traffic and make you consistent with traffic. And yep. I respectfully disagree with him on that. And I'm not saying I'm against doing all those things. I think that it's protected bike lanes. It's, I'm going to begin and end with that. It's protected bike I, lanes. And I, and I tend to agree. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the car is going to win, you know? So yep. um, if you get, you could do everything right, but when there's a mistake, you're always going to be the loser. And that's just too high of a risk for most people. Before I run out of time on this section, I just want to tie in the last thing that I don't have a, an answer to. And the question is, we know there's been this bike boom. We know people, I'm looking out the window, people are not driving their cars at the same level. Do we have a notice, noticeable difference in climate? Is this something that is actually scientifically shown? And is society going to care enough? Are we going to notice it enough? Um, to get that impetus as well into, into the subject. Well, I think it's difficult to make a short, you can make an easy, easily make a short-term observation, but I don't think we're, we're going to really know how much it sticks until probably next year, next summer, to see A, what boat we're in with COVID, and B, whether people are still uh, sticking to some of their new habits of, of biking, getting out with their families, commuting, that type of thing. So let's move on to something that I always like talking about, which is the Idaho stop. And oh, Andrew has a little bit more information on that, as well as something that I've never heard of before, which is the Delaware yield, which just sounds made up. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about that. Andrew, well, you had some more information on that. Yeah, let's talk about it. I mean, a, a lot of most of my friends that are at least are road bikers or roadies, as I call them, are all familiar with the Idaho stop. But even if you're not familiar with it. Hold on. So let's just start there. Tell us exactly what the Idaho stop means. The, the Idaho stop says that if you're on a bicycle and you come to a stop sign, you can really treat that as a yield sign and just yield. So you don't really have to come to a complete stop. And if you come to a red light, you could treat that as a stop sign. Now, okay. now that came into, that was enacted in, in, in Idaho in 1982. And they were the only state up until 2017 that had that law. So everybody kind of referred to it jokingly as the Idaho stop when they go through stop signs. The studies have shown universally that the, the percentage of people that actually stop at a stop sign on a bicycle when they've done independent studies in certain cities, including Chicago, was, okay. roughly, was roughly one out of 25, okay? So the truth is, nobody's really stopping anyway at a stop sign. It just happens to be against the law. What a lot of people don't realize is they think the Idaho stop was like pushed by bikers in Idaho. Actually, nothing's farther from the truth. It was the judges that, that pushed the law. They were, they were getting tired of clogging up the courts with these, with these minor infractions for people going through stop signs on the bicycles and wanted to change it. And as soon as they changed it, a year later, 14% safer on the road for bicycles. And I, I'll, I'll go into that in a second. I want wow. to talk about that not only does it allow bicycles to do what they already are doing, but it's actually safer. And that's, that's really a fascinating concept of this. And then then 2017, Delaware wanted to do something similar. But what they did is stop signs are yield, but red lights are still stop signs. So okay. 
at a red light, you still got to stop as a stop sign. Now there's eight States that have some version of that Colorado this year picked up the Delaware yield, which is a version of Idaho stop 2019 Arkansas did. And as of about a week from now in Washington state also enacted the, the, the Delaware yield. But there's versions of it in a few other states. So in Illinois, if you're if you don't live in a municipality that has two thousand two million or more people, which basically means you don't live in Chicago, then you could uh, wait 120 seconds, and then you can go through a red light on a bicycle. Indiana, same thing. Indiana, it's the entire state. Doesn't make a difference where you are. And Kansas uh, has you could wait a reasonable amount of time. I'm sorry. There's actually other states. So Minnesota has wait a reasonable amount of time. That could be 10 seconds, you know, it depends what it is. Missouri, same thing. Nevada and Oregon, you have to wait a couple cycles. Uh, Nevada, you got to wait a couple cycles of the traffic and Oregon, you got to wait, you got to wait once complete cycle. Not hundred percent, hundred percent sure what that means. I think it was when there's like only like a, like an arrow, you know, that comes up and you want to go straight. Um, did you, did you mention why it's safer? I still, that baffles me. Well, you know, I did a lot of research on that, and, and it's, it's really interesting. Nobody really knows why. You know, they gave the example that, you know, they invented aspirin in the late 19th century, and they didn't know why it worked. And 80 years later, they finally figured it out, but they knew that it worked, so nobody really cared. And to some degree, there's theories, but nobody knows why. Some of the, the, some of the main theories as to why it works is, is that people will tend to um, – use stop sign streets because they could yield to them. So they'll use lower traffic streets because it's quicker. Talking about uh, on the bicycle or in the car? They on, do the, on the bicycle. So they'll go to the stop sign streets. Another one that's interesting is that um, there's safety in numbers. So if it, if it makes more people ride a bike, then biking generally statistically always becomes safer. Um, I thought it was interesting that they that 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 one of the theories also is that bikes are unlike cars are inherently more stable as they go faster. So asking people to slow down and stop at an intersection makes a bicycle more unstable, more likely to fall at really the worst place an intersection, you know. Okay. Um another another reasons why they believe it is and I believe this one actually specifically is it makes people it makes the mentality of people to pay attention, to be more aggressive for their safety, not just to follow a rule. And it puts people um, usually in front of the traffic out of the blind spot. So people go to the front of a car or, you know, in a, in a better position, you know, interesting to note, women are, are uh, three times more likely to die in a bicycle crash than men. And and it's interesting because they also are like five times more likely to to follow the rules of the road. So um, it kind of goes with some of this theory, you know, that they're not being aggressive. And I've always kind of believed that there's one thing to do that's safe. And there's one thing to do what the law tells you, you know, you're, you're a pedestrian, you're walking. If it says go green, you're allowed to walk. That doesn't mean you should. Right. Right. So what the laws and what's safe are, are, are separate things. So I, I think for a lot of reasons, this is going to ultimately get to most states because it just makes sense. Right now in the state of Illinois, you have to, a cyclist is required to come to a complete stop at a stop sign. Right. And, and, and as of like three years ago, one out of 25 did. Yeah. So, you know, at some point, what really is the law, right? I mean, nobody's right. actually following it. 
Mm-hmm. And in the law, there is a certain thing called custom. I mean, there is a certain point where the law becomes what people are actually doing, you know, um, you know, not legally, not yet. In right, 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 right. Statue. What's your thoughts on that, Joe? I, I know you, you don't mind stopping with an electric bike, do you? Well, my, what I was going to say is just the opposite, is that I just yesterday, I did an Idaho stop, a great one. And I was saying, I literally said it out loud to myself. I said, the Idaho stop. And as I fly through after kind of, you know, Yelling. pumping pumping my brakes mm-hmm. a little bit. And, you know, to me, it was more like European biking where where all vehicles are doing the smart thing to keep the flow the greatest. So you know, I'll say this until somebody blows through a stop sign and then hits me. But for now, it seems to me like it's just a, a much hot, more highly intelligent way to be moving through traffic. So well, right. I mean, let's I be love clear. It. There's nothing about the Idaho stop that says be reckless at an intersection. You know, right. It's right. saying yield to traffic. So, But it, um, it was because, in my case, I think it, it was because of what you said earlier. Because I was on the move, I actually feel like I had more control over my bike than I would at a super slow speed. You know, the truth is, it's no different than a pedestrian. A pedestrian this does is, not have to come to a stop. This is another one of those topics. I hate to be this guy, but this <laughs> is another one of those topics that we should probably, I think we should just have like separate shows for certain topics, just, just so we can go off on them for 20 minutes, forget about everything else. I, I feel like in this instance, I think let's just take a quick yay or nay. Idaho stop, yay or nay. I'd say yay. 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 All right. All right. So God knows, you know, from our ears to the legislators, let's see what happens. Okay. And then let's move on. Uh, Joe, you had one last piece of business you want to talk about? Yeah, exactly. We, I just want to, so we're going to close up with, with um, an organization that I just want to shine a little bit of light on. It's called okay. the Peace Peloton. Uh, it's their, their kind of tagline is economic reform for black people. And it was started by a group of friends in Seattle to organize and mobilize bicyclists just to simply tour their own community and to spend their money at Black-owned businesses. Obviously, this was in light of, of the protest of Black yeah. Lives Matter, and, and it was just a way to, to um, in, using bike, bicycling uh, to improve society and the world in an anti-racist way. And so they began in June of 2020, just a couple months ago. They, want, they thought they were going to get about 30 riders, which actually I thought was pretty good. If I had a first ride, I'd be ecstatic with that. Hundreds showed up, uh, and it's grown from there. So they now have expanded out to Tacoma, which is near, nearby Seattle, but that's their second. And next up, according to them, is Portland, Los Angeles, New York, and London. Uh, all of these places. So you get a hold of them at info at peacepeloton.com. Peace like uh, like the peace sign. Okay. Um, yeah, and- I, I tell you, I love this. Really, really great, great thing to highlight, Joe. Great, great to bring to the podcast. Uh, really, it hits on all cylinders. You know, it's empowering uh, for the black community. It's empowering for people on bikes. It's empowering for the, for the businesses that own, the, you know, that they visit and spend their money to, uh, really it's great. Um, now uh, can you get involved in expanding this other places or? Yeah. Like I said, so, so what I, I had emailed, uh, the organizers and they emailed me back and said, uh, email them at, at, uh, actually their Twitter handle is at peace Peloton, uh, website, peacepeloton.com. And, 
uh, email them at info at peacepeloton.com. And then in the info line, say the city that you want to expand it to, and they'll help you do that. That's great. Yeah, that that, great. that's great. And it, it also, I think, goes with the theme, uh, you know, you, you have to be anti-racist to, to not be racist, you know. And, yep. and this is a good example of that. Check them out right. on YouTube, too. It's a, it actually looks like a really fun ride. All right. All right. We're going to look into that. And uh, I think this is where we're going to leave it today, right? Uh, I think we had a lot of good stuff, uh, a lot of things we have to talk about in the future, which is maybe expanding some of these sections. But uh, this was a really good conversation today, gentlemen. Yeah. I had a lot Thank of you guys. Right. With everybody. everybody stay safe. So let's wrap it up. All right. That will do it for this episode of the Freedom Machine podcast. I'd like to thank Andrew and Joe for their time today. Hopefully you enjoyed the show and it was interesting, informative, and entertaining. Also like to thank our sponsors, the law firm of Cass and Moses, the nation's bicycle accident law firm. And thank you for joining us. Remember, you can reach out to us at freedommachine at cassandmoses.com. Please like and subscribe in your favorite platforms, and we'll see you again soon. Welcome to the Freedom Machine podcast. Two lawyers, both lovers of cycling with different passions. Andrew is moved by road biking, group riding, and the latest technology. Joe's interests lie in e-bikes, commuting, and getting people out of cars and onto bikes. They are partners in the law firm of Cass and Moses, the nation's bicycle accident law firm. And I'm your host, Fred Mullins, a person who enjoys the freedom of the open road you only get on a bicycle. Now let's get into the show. All right. What have we got to talk about uh, this week? I know uh, one of our topics is winter riding uh i i am i have to admit i am not an avid winter rider i become a wimp when uh when it gets below 32 degrees uh anders knows this about me i also also don't ride in too much wet weather in that if i see a cloud it pretty much scares me off the bike so uh andrew what what i know the one thing i do know about winter riding is or at least this is what i've been told it's all about being prepared it's all about having the right layers much like an onion uh yeah you know i i it's interesting one of the things you have to change first really and i think you struggle with this as many people do is really your frame of mind that's the first thing you have to change is just your perspective on it and a lot of people have misconceptions about how it really works and how it really feels to ride in the winter but once you kind of accept the concept of trying to give it a go i think most people will find way more enjoyable than they, they would anticipate. And in fact, if anything, I think a lot of people are more concerned about being cold when really what they'll probably be is too warm most of the time when they're on their bike. So there, there, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, and I think we could probably do a whole podcast on winter bike riding, but we're going to try to carve out, you know, a good 10 or 15 minutes, uh, to, to, well, about 10 minutes to talk about it today. Okay. As we always like to do, let's get into the first thing, which would be the ride, the gear, and the route. Uh, Joe, do you want to take us away with that? Yes, I'm up this week. All right. So for, for the ride, I'm going to get a little personal. Um, so the birthday before my father passed away at 85 years old, uh, my siblings and I bought him a bicycle. He really wanted to ride a bicycle. He hadn't ridden in 30 or 40 years. So uh, unfortunately, we bought that bicycle. It's still in the garage. Uh, but uh, the spring had passed. He, his birthday was in the in the in january the spring had passed he never got to ride it so to that end with a bike boom 
Uh, here, I took the opportunity to, to do a little research for e-bikes for seniors. And what I came up with is the AARP listed 20 e-bikes for seniors. And particularly, uh, we looked into, what is this, a Trek Verve Plus. That's the one recommended. Uh, it's got uh, it's got a bouncy, I don't, I don't know what word you use for it, but a bouncy seat. Uh, it's a step through. It uh, has, it's light for an e-bike. So they say that, in a, that, a, that an elderly person could do it. So I am 58 going on elderly and that is my bike of choice for now. I would, I would like to get that in my next You'd like to get 10 that. years okay. from now is when I'd like to get it. Now you have an e-bike right now, right? I do. Okay. And what, what are you riding right now? Uh, it's a, actually, I forgot what it's called, but one thing I know is it's not a step through and, and every day it's getting harder and harder to swing my, my leg over the pannier, panniers, panniers. Mm -hmm. And I get that. I, I get it. It's heavy and it's high. When you say step through, just so we understand in America, you mean a woman's bike, correct? Yes. And in Europe, it's called a normal bike. <laughs> I know. And I think, and I think we have to try to change how we, what our perceptions are of a step through bike. It's, it's not considered a woman's bike anywhere else in the world, but here. And it kind of makes no sense for it to get that reputation. Uh, I do think that, that, that has to change. Uh, and of course, Joe, you ride an e-bike for commuting all the time. I've got friends that ride an e-bike on a road bike. Uh, so not just for seniors, seniors, like somebody 70 plus, but for a lot of guys with injuries or starting to age out of their group rides, they'll get a road, the road bike that's an e-bike and lets them stay with their friends, lets them continue to do the same rides and still gives them a really vigorous workout as well. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, there's just so many uses for an e-bike. I'm going to jump into gear, to my gear choice. Um, so this is something I have yet to try, but it goes hand in hand with winter riding. It's called FogTech Instant Anti-Fog. It comes in this little towelettes, and you there's a great YouTube on it where you just wipe it in a certain way. You have to follow the way the guy does it on the YouTube, and you're glad you're... Uh, Goggles and glasses won't fog. I wouldn't use it on my glasses uh, just because I don't know if it would ruin it. But on the goggles for winter riding, that's my biggest problem. You get heat. Or we'll talk about that later when we get into winter riding. But you got to have goggles. And this anti-fog is something I am 100% going to buy and try. And I'll report back. And we'll look for, forward to a uh, hands-on review. Yes. That'd be great. Lastly, the, the ride. Uh, going over to Europe for this one. And there is a bike bridge, three football fields long in obviously the Netherlands, which I'm going to talk about almost every single week is the Dutch no biking. And uh, so this this bridge, uh, it's between The Hague and a suburban town, which I can't pronounce, Jeppenburg. Okay. And this bridge has solar lighting. So the whole thing is lit is lit up. Uh, by solar panels on this piece of art at the end of it. Uh, it's, like I said, it's about three football fields long, 21 feet wide, goes over this huge highway, uh, blocks the wind on one side, allows for this great view on the other side. They know how to do it in the Netherlands. 
Well, I think they know how to do it. I, I think someone uh, pointed this out to me. I think it might have been Andrew that we consider the Netherlands a big biking culture, but they weren't always that way. It was a shift. Um, yeah, to get away from cars and, and get more. And that's what you need. If you get away from cars, you need the infrastructure to get people out of their cars and onto the road, you know, and realize. Netherlands did a great, they did a great job. And, and, and their theory was just make it the most convenient way to get from point A to point B and route the cars sort of around the city center. And they don't, you don't have to try to advocate that it's good for the environment or even good for your health. Just make that the best way to get around. And people will naturally will want to go on a bike to do it. And they're also incredibly flat. Yeah. So just in closing, just to show that it isn't that um, automatic, even for the Dutch, even at this point, uh, there was a couple of notes that, that I found in my, in my research that, first of all, it took 10 years to get approved and made. Um, the argument was that it's an unnecessary bridge. There's a perfectly good alternative already, which was along the high, the busy highway. And so they ended up, you know, basically they ended up fighting through it. It was 12 million euros and they ended up getting it passed. However, not without a lot of fighting and not a lot of, of complaining from people who don't ride bikes. Well, there was also, a, I read uh, recently or saw, saw an article recently about a tunnel in the Netherlands that connects to a, connects the city center to, to a suburb. And the tunnel had a walking concourse and it had a bicycling concourse and they shut down the walking concourse for construction and they left the biking concourse open. And instead of putting people on the, just walking the biking concourse, they ended up setting up a bike share. So if you walk down there and you don't have a bike, they give you a bike at one end so you can ride it across and uh, stay in the, uh, the biking tunnel. And they keep traffic flowing that way. That's interesting. That's smart. You know, you know, just as a side note, you know what you don't really see that often in the Netherlands is helmets. Because other than road bikers, you don't really need a helmet when there's no cars around you. The safety factor goes up so significantly. And rarely do people feel even a need, justifiably so, to even put on a helmet, which is another nice aspect of getting completely, uh, the bikes completely separate from the cars, you know, with real infrastructure. But when you when you may want to wear a helmet, it's when you're winter riding. So, <laughs> so ooh, nice segue, nice segue. So let's <laughs> exactly. go right into let's go right into Andrew's uh, going to talk to us about winter riding. So yeah, I mean, let me tell you. First of all, we're obviously approaching officially winter is going to start now in about ten days. It's around mid December right now. Uh, so I kind of want to thought about why would you want to winter ride? This this is really to talk about people that don't do it. people that winter ride already. They already know the benefits. They've probably been doing it for a long time, but this is a unique time. The pandemic is probably encouraging a lot more people to continue bike riding after the warm weather ends, because that's where they're getting their physical health and their mental health is being helped by being outside. So with gyms still closed and not a lot of other options, there's a lot of reasons to continue riding. But I want to kind of give you my thoughts on it. I'm curious to hear Joe, who, who commutes you around as well. One, it's a lot better than a spin bike. You know, if you, if you ride inside, which I am forced to do, uh, the only benefit is it makes you live a lot longer because about every minute on a bike feels about like an hour. So it really could slow down time, which is, which is kind of nice. As, as, listen, as we know, as, we, as you get older, for those of you listening that are in your 40s and 50s and older, getting in shape is a lot more difficult than staying in shape, right? So taking 
three or four months off makes it much less enjoyable and difficult. Uh, and frankly, there's a satisfaction you get from just kind of triumphing over the over the elements. You just feel somewhat like a badass when you get outside in the wintertime and you ride because, frankly, not a lot of people are doing it. And there is a certain maybe it's a uh, a certain pride I think you get from doing that. Maybe that's a little juvenile, but that's how I feel. No, no, I, I, I do think I do think there is a certain pride when you when you're when you're toughing it out and you're getting out and other people aren't. And I do think people kind of fall into a perceived um, season when when the when what you're saying is it doesn't need to, your season doesn't need to end necessarily. No, Joe, what's your thoughts on on uh, riding outside the winter? Yeah, so so my perspective again is um, I have dedicated myself this this winter, which I haven't hit the the tough winter yet, to commuting to work all year. Uh, um, through it. And I have, so there are a couple of things just pandemic wise that I wanted to point out. You kind of touched on it is for one, uh, when you, I get to the office, clothing isn't an issue this year. In the past, you know, you may have wanted to shower and you want to, you have to bring, you know, work clothes and everything. Well, now nobody's here. Nobody's coming to the office. I'm going to the office, but it doesn't make a difference. So, um, so that's one good thing. You could wear riding clothes and you could stay in riding clothes or at least commuting clothes. And in addition is same with you had touched on kind of the attitude uh, because of the pandemic, getting out for anything in any way is better than not at this point. And so not even exercise, just literally getting air in your face, clearing your head. Yeah. Is, is just something that that's the real reason I'm doing it this year. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I want to talk about from my experience, and I've been riding outside in the winter probably for about five or six years is I want to share some of the tips that I have, some of the things I've learned uh, that work, that don't work. Uh, but one thing is for certain is everybody's very different. People run at different temperatures. So what works for one person is not going to necessarily work for the next person. You kind of got to get to know your body. And, and it's, it's amazing how complicated in a sense it becomes to figure out exactly what to wear <laughs> based on the weather. Because you have the moisture, the temperature, you've got the wind speed, you know how long you're riding for, et cetera. So I want to talk about, and I'm curious, Joe, to hear what your thoughts are too on some of the things I found that worked. So let's start with the head, okay? Your head's got to be warm. If it's not, you're going to be really, really uncomfortable. Uh, anything under about 35 degrees, ski goggles, even a cheap pair from Amazon for 15 bucks is all you need, is for most people, the first time they do it, it's a complete game changer. I've seen, I've talked to seasoned cyclists that the first time they tried it, they said all of a sudden it was like being in a car, you know, the wind in your eyes is gone. You don't tear up. It's comfortable. A full face mask. Like a, a, I'll probably screw this up, but a balaclava, you know, everybody knows what I'm saying. Baklava, whatever, you know. Baklava. <laughs> balaclava. Oh, oh yes, Fred, you're baklava. right. You are correct. Baklava is, is, is a, a dessert. delicious dessert. Right. But so close, but so similar. So close. Balaclava. Say it again, Fred. Balaclava. Balaclava. I don't know why. They, I, 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 linguistically, I promise with simple words. Well, it's key to have a full face head one, okay, that covers your ears. Uh, once you once you get under you know 32 degrees, for sure you want that. Uh, in terms of your hands, now this is really where I'm. A, I'm almost a salesman for a new thing called bar mitts. Can we stop at the head? Yeah, you use because I have a few things to say sure. about that. So, um, 
for starters, one of the things, so, so what I wear is, um, is a very thin, what is it, like a skull cap kind of thing uh, that goes under the helmet, under the helmet. So one of the things I'm worried about there today, we're at 99% chance of rain on my way home. And one of the things I'm concerned about is how do I get, you know, kind of a rain cover under my helmet or over my helmet for that matter. I, I'm assuming that I'm going to wear the hood of my rain of my raincoat over my head, but I don't know if the helmet will fit. So that's that's one worry. Any any, any thoughts from either of you guys on that? Well, well, first of all, they got they got rain covers for helmets, so you could buy a, a rain cover or Gore-Tex cover. Uh, I would certainly pick that's that. That's what up. I'll do. For sure. That's the answer. Um, and once again, even when we talk about heads, okay, I mean, obviously everybody heads different, but for instance, for me, a good, I got, I got several helmets, but one of my helmets, that's a warmer helmet I use in the wintertime. That keeps me pretty warm. You know, I don't, I, for me, once I got the full face mask on, that goes over my head too. So my head almost never gets cold under for me, under under twenty, under under freezing, under thirty two degrees, exposed skin on my face starts to become an issue. So think about that; it's a critical number, the thirty two degrees. When you get under thirty two, everything changes a little bit, and and we'll talk, I want to talk about that in a second. But I want to get to hands because that's that's really the the part. Hands. And- I still got a couple more things for heads. Who's head are you talking about? You're your head. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. For my head, I just have a couple more questions. So, so the. Um, yeah, so the balaclava. So what I use instead is I have a neck gaiter, a, a thin material neck gaiter that I pull up over. It goes. It basically meets my my uh, meets the goggles and it and it meets the the hat, the the thin hat. So nothing. And with the goggles over it, it doesn't expose. Problem is, it gets wet because I'm breathing through it. Uh, and any solutions to that? Any ideas to that? That that's a problem a lot of people have. You know, one of the things is it depends on the temperature. So sometimes I'll pull it down a little bit when I'm writing, just to kind of not constantly go through it. But you, your lungs need to get warm air, right? So your lungs, your body is designed to warm the air before it hits your lungs. Otherwise, you'd have even bigger problems. So to the extent that you could breathe through your nose, if you can, that actually helps it a little bit. And covering your mouth warms up the air for your lungs, which makes it easier. So it's hard when it gets really cold not to have something over your mouth most of the time. Well, I need it. I need it because I need to cover all skin. Right. And, 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 and they're, so, they're all like silk ones that don't seem to be as bad as the other ones. So I would experiment with that. The silk ones, although they're light, they're actually particularly warm. But I got a cheap $12 one from Costco, honestly, that works amazing. So I, I don't think you need okay. anything fancy there. Well, my problem, like I said, it gets, it gets wet. And not only does that mean I need about seven of them because – it's kind of gross, but also that gets cold, the wet. So last thing I'll say about the hat is the goggles. One of the, un, the thing I didn't see coming that's super cool is everything is yellow or whatever color your goggles are. And it makes it really uh, cool. Yeah. But you know, actually let me jump on that for a second be careful about goggles because they do tint, but a lot of times there's a lot less light during the winter time. So you're much more likely to be riding in the dark. And you want goggles that are pretty light tinted or clear so you could see. Otherwise, if you start out in the dark and you got dark goggles, that could be a problem. Um, so now let's move on. Now it seems like we got the head covered pretty good. Head's got to be warm. When the head's warm, you're almost half, you're, I'd say you're a third of the way there. Uh, your hands, 
I, I did I did gloves for a long time. For me, my hands always froze. Now I switch to something called bar mitts. Are you guys familiar with bar mitts? Yeah, they're they're you install them on your bike, so they they integrate the the mitten aspect to the bike. So you like slide into them like they're sleeves. Am I right? Right. They're, they're, they're a little like mittens for the handlebars. And bar mitts, I think, is actually a brand name, but they're like some people call them pogies. Uh, they're really a game. That's another game changer. I'm going to use a game changer twice for the, uh, for the helmet, for the, for the goggles, and for the bar mitts. Because I rode yesterday. It was 29 degrees. I didn't even wear gloves. I had regular summer half-finger gloves on. My hands were warm the entire time. Uh, really, and and everybody I know that switched to them really likes them. Joe, you got bar mitts. What's your what's your opinion on them? Yeah, first of all, I got a less expensive pair because the bar mitts are like eighty five dollars. I got mine for about twenty five dollars. I don't think I'm I'm compromising in terms of um, cold. We'll find out when it gets really really cold. But they're amazing, and and uh, to me, the advantage is I have light. I have very thin gloves. On uh, and that means you know with um, the ability to do a touchscreen. So if I get a phone call or something like that, I can just pull my hand out of the bar mitts and um, you know answer the phone. Yeah, you know that's interesting. You say that one of the things I love about the bar mitts is you still have your fingers. So when you want to when you want to kind of mess around with finagle your your uh, your gator or your bakalakalakava, whatever the hell that is called. Balaclava. When you want to mess with that, you kind of need the fine motor movement of your fingers to do that. It's very hard in gloves to kind of move it up and down. Do your so hands like get sweaty in the bar mitts? I've always thought they were they, at twenty nine. They don't. They get warm, but they get they can get a little sweaty once it gets into like the higher thirties. Um, so that's kind of a, and how easy are they to take on and off of the uh, handlebars? Just out of curiosity. Uh, pretty easy. I I wouldn't call it the exact same as not having them on. There's a you know there's a little more of a thought to it. But relatively trivial in my mind. I don't think it would make anybody feel uncomfortable. Um, so now you get to the body. Frankly, the body, you know, obviously, as you guys, for those of you who see me, I have a, I'm, I'm very fit. I got a very chiseled body. I, don't, I know you can't see it right now, but there's a six pack underneath my shirt. <laughs> This is a yeah tough crowd, <laughs> tough crowd here. Uh, I, I felt bad laughing at you. Uh, I was gonna say you're you're not lacking. You know, it's not like you're so thin that you don't have any any fat to burn. You know, if you were stranded on if you were stranded on a desert oh, island, Fred, you'd make it a couple the of weeks. I'm listeners just saying, cannot. You know, <laughs> the listeners cannot see me. What are you talking about? Now, let me tell you honestly about the body is. Now, Joe might disagree a little bit because he's on an e-bike, so I'm curious in his opinion. I also have a very different body than you, honestly. Yeah, that that, that I'm thicker. That's true too. But what I, what I'm really getting at is when you're on the bike, you're creating a lot of heat. So personally, my body and my legs have never been that much of an issue in terms of being cold. It's always been my extremities. It's always been my feet, my really my my head and my hands. Um, but with that being said. A few years ago, I got into, which maybe everybody knew about for 100 years, but I started really using just merino wool as my base layers. And merino wool is really your best friend. I'm not even just talking about the wintertime. I'm talking the summertime, anytime. It's, it's, it's natural properties are incredible. It wicks amazingly well. It's got natural resistance to odor. So you can wear the same merino wool. For me, at least, I, I could wear it all the time. Yeah, Joe, what's your thoughts on that? So I'm, I'm curious, so would you call it a game changer? I, I think, I don't know if it's a game changer because I think it's always been the game. 
you know, I don't think it's changing the game. I think I, I was late to the game, you know. Uh, I think people have known about Marino Wall. In fact, I did a three-week bike tour in New Zealand, unfortunately, before I was into Marino Wall. Now I understand why everybody was buying Marino Wall like crazy when we were at the shops. Um, but I use it as a base layer. Listen, I've done I've done trips with 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 guides that wear a Marino Wall, thin Marino Wall base layer, 90 degrees outside. Because, in fact, Fred, you and I did a trip in Mexico once where the guy wore a base layer, a Marino base layer. And he says he doesn't want to stink up his, his, you know, his kid all the time. So he just wears a Marino base layer and it doesn't smell afterwards. You can wear it five times in a row without even washing it. So the, in the summertime, it works well. In the wintertime, it's great. It naturally wicks. And now it's just about layers. Like, you know, we've all heard about layers, layers, layers. And it really does come down to layers. That's sort of, that's where I get to knowing your body, right? Try a jacket, try two layers, try one layer, try three layers. You'll start figuring out what temperature and what you need. You know, I now have it down to a science. So I don't have to think anymore. I see the temperature. I know exactly what I'm wearing. It's going to keep me comfortable. So, but Marina wool is not cheap. That's the only problem. It is pretty expensive. I, as we sit here today, on the, you guys can see me on the Zoom. I have two layers of Merino wool on as we speak, it, a short sleeve and a long sleeve. Uh, also, you know, my thing about the, the layers, I agree with you completely that that it gets nice and warm. I mean, the you know, the, the core of your body gets nice and warm. I don't like the concept where they say, you know, you should go out and be a little cold and then you'll warm up. And now I'm on the e-bike, so it takes me a little more time to warm up, but I warm up. But I, I'm just not that interested in leaving my house in winter, being uncomfortable, getting on my bike and waiting until I'm comfortable. So I feel like I want to overdress and then I'm a little bit too warm. And that's just what I do. I, I agree. I think that's another personal preference. You know, some people would rather kind of start nice and toasty and just be a little over hot when they're riding. I don't and think so, I'll get out of the house if I, if I do otherwise, that's my worry. Yeah, I, I could, I, I definitely understand that. And I, and I, a lot of times will, will, um, I'll sort of modify my pace as well that, you know, I'll wear warmer stuff or I'll just go a little slower so I don't work as hard. So I got to keep my pace. So I, I think those are all learning curves, but I think the real takeaway here has got to be for everybody is you will not be cold when you ride. I've ridden when it was single digits. You could literally dress so you're comfortable. I think most people think of winter riding as being, oh, I'm so cold because, you know, you, you walk to get your mail and you're freezing. You know, I don't think it's like that. I think when you're dressed correctly, uh, a lot, there's a famous saying, there's no bad weather. There's only bad clothes, you know, or something to that effect. Uh, but I, but now we're going to move on uh, unless everybody's going to have thoughts, we'll move on to feet. Joe. No, it's actually after feet. So I'll wait. Okay. So let's get to feet. Feet for me has been the area that probably has caused me the most pain actually in riding where when my feet get too cold. Uh, I find it really uncomfortable this year. I made a couple of changes and let me let me let me tell you a few things you could try with feet, okay? One is the basics are have shoe covers. Definitely help to have a shoe cover. Uh, two, some people wrap their feet in tin foil or aluminum foil. Aluminum foil, it 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 does help. Uh, people, some people swear by that. It, it, it I guess it's aluminum foil insulates. So if you get you know if you put a tin foil over food, it keeps the food hot. Well, you put around your, your, if you wrap it around your foot, your foot generates heat and it kind of keeps the heat in there. So it, it, it is kind of a sort of maybe a poor man's way to kind of help out and it works somewhat. And then I got a tip to wear layers. Once again, let's go back to layers. Wear merino wool layers for socks. 
So you have to get thin merino wool socks. So I actually did that. I got that. And I got to say, first of all, that's amazing. That that I did a ride yesterday. My feet were warm. I did two, two thin merino wool layers. Now, this is the first year I do got to say I invested in an actual winter shoe, a, a, a winter road boot. So I am, with, I am with a shoe that's a little bit warmer than a normal shoe. But that combination now, I'm, I'm convinced I've, it took me a long time. It took me like 20 years. But I think I finally have solved my foot problem. Now, for me, it was a winter shoe with a, just a toe cover on it and two thin socks. And now I'm pretty good to go, I would say, into the teens. For the commuter uh, who doesn't have to click in, if you have a bike where you don't have to click in like I do, uh, you uh, they sell basically down coats for your feet. And that's what I'm interested in. I don't have that yet, but I'm interested in that. I would think with commuting, you can really go to a traditional almost winter boot and stay pretty warm. Well, that's what I have on as we speak because they're waterproof uh, and it's going to rain again today. And so I'm curious where this takes me for the winter. So I would try, I'd probably try this winter boot mixed with the with the two pair of merino wool socks and see where that takes me. So I think now we covered the body, okay? Now I think what I like to talk about is the bike itself. What changes do you need to your bike to make it safe? A lot of times when you tell people you're going to ride in the winter, the first thing they think about after your nuts for riding out in the winter is, isn't that really dangerous? Aren't you going to crash? Isn't there black ice? Um, all those things. And for starters, yes, there's more, there is more things to be aware of. There's more safety aspects. I would say there's probably only a handful of days where you just don't even go outside. It's just kind of ridiculous. And it's 15 inches of snow on the ground. Um, but I would say 95% of the time, as long as you make certain changes to your bike, you're safe to go out. So I want to touch upon a couple of things, Joe, and I'm curious to hear what you say about your end out of from commuting for my end. A couple of changes I make, is one, I will put fenders on my bike. I just have clip-on fenders if it's a little bit wet or raining so I don't get all kind of messy. Um, I have a, I have several bikes, so I'll probably take my gravel bike, which is much thicker tires when it, when it gets a little more nasty out. That gives me a lot more rubber on the road, some more tread on the road. You know, so they're a little bit more knobby. That gives me a lot more traction. Now, I'm not commuting, so if it's icy, I'm not really going out and riding. I'm not really prepared for ice, but for snow and kind of wet stuff, I'm pretty good for. Joe, how do you commute year round with all the ice conditions? Well, I'm excited to say that I got uh, studded tires uh, this year, which are, you know, so they're little tiny metal studs that are on the tires and they're totally fine to ride around when there's no ice and snow, but when they're ice and snow, I, which I've yet to see since I've had these on, I hear it's unbelievable. And then, and then you bought me a little uh, Christmas gift, <laughs> which is uh, I'm holding it up. These guys can see, you guys can see, but it's um, they're studded like straps to put on the bottom of your shoes. And I think I'm going to ride with those too. In case, so when I put my foot down and it's on ice, that'll stick. Also, it's really cool. Yeah, and, and I I guess you could say you're somewhat of a stud then. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. Yeah, let, let me talk about studded tires. Studded tire, studded, I can tell you a fact, because I know a lot of guys that ride with studded tires. And one, hate to go back to game changer, but they all, <laughs> that might be the trifecta. They call that the game changer because you could, they literally could ride over ice and anything else with those. Actually, I, want, I do want to put on record. So last winter, 
I rode one day. I got maybe three quarters of a mile from my house and I slipped on ice and fell and went back home. So that was last winter, nose cut and tire. So let's see what happens. I know the actual spot where it happened right by the train track. So I'm curious what will happen this year. You know, just a couple of considerations though. Remember when you're outside in the winter, you're even less predictable for cars. They're not expecting to see you. So you kind of be super aware of that. Uh, as always, make sure you got great lights on your bike. That's what I was going to say. Know, lights, 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 especially because you'll be riding in the dark quite a bit, you know, have great lights and, and, you know, not, it's not just set of tires. There's tires for, there's fat bikes. Now they got fat tires that will literally go over any kind of snow you want. Um, a couple of things to also think about is there's a lot more salt on the road. Uh, you need to do more maintenance on your bike. You're gonna, your bike's going to, this chains are going to lose its oil really quickly. So you need, you need to be degreasing and cleaning your chain more and keeping it oiled. Uh, otherwise, you're going to get a lot of corrosion. It's going to affect your bike quite a bit. Yeah, the guy at the bike store just last week, I was asking about how to care for the chain. And he said his idea is he takes this uh, rubber that they use for under the toilets. It's like kind of a neoprene. It's like a bendable rubber. And he cuts it and he makes, in essence, a mud flap for his front tire. And he says he keeps all the gook from getting out of the chain in the first place. So I'm going to try to construct that thing this year. Yeah, let me know how that goes. We, we could talk about that next time. I'm curious. Well, you go, it connects to your fender and it goes lower. That's like a fender, basically, but a mud flap. That's, yeah. like, that's what I mean, like a mud flap. So it's like, from the from the fender down on the back end of the front tire. Listen to, to the viewers out there. I'm really, really interested in, in what suggestions you might have or what, what experiences you have. You know, always feel free to reach us at uh, freedom machine at castandmoses.com and let us know what your thoughts are. You know, this is our experiences, but we're always learning as well. I know we're wrapping, but actually I had one more thing about the, the road. I have not experienced this yet, but one of the things I'm really afraid of is is I have crafted my route so that I am off roads. I'm on, I'm going through parks, I'm on sidewalks, I'm on paths, I'm through the forest preserve. And I don't know how they clean those. I don't know if I'm going to be able to ride those. And so one of my fears is that I'm going to be forced to ride into the, on the roads. And then even on those roads, those roads are going to be thinner because there's snow on the sides. So, I mean, I'm kind of crafting some more uh, low speed roads but it's not possible to do it everywhere. So we shall see. We'll look forward to hearing your uh, adventures commuting all year. Did this. any of this convince you, uh, you Fred, to uh, give it a shot? You know the one thing it did convince me of is I really should get out uh, in the winter just because it, there is no substitute for the open road. Fred, does, you do a lot of Peloton uh, inside, which is great. And, and I do And I have to say I have a Peloton as well on days where I just cannot get out. But as great as a Peloton is, for me at least, there's nothing like outside. There's too many different variables out there. Just to clear your head properties that outside gives you far away uh, the exercise benefits you're getting inside. I do agree. I completely agree with that. I completely agree with that. Let's move on to the legal, if we could, because I think Joe wanted to uh, touch base on something called the Dutch Reach. That sounds a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so not the Dutch treat, but the Dutch reach. It is, uh, in short, it's the simplest, cheapest, greatest solution uh, to bicycle versus car accidents, particularly being doored, having the door open on you. And so in, in short, what it is, Fred, you say you, you know about this, but what it is is 
it's teaching the technique that you, at least in the, you know, in the States, when we drive on the left side or on the, what do we drive on the right side of the road, that you use your, your opposite inside hand. Yeah. You use the opposite hand, the not the door yeah. hand, but the inside hand. Yeah. Like you say, to open your door, to open your driver's side door. And if you do that, you can't swing that door open. It forces you to turn your shoulders and you can see if a bike is coming and it's fantastic. And there's a movement uh, a flow to get this adopted everywhere. It started in Massachusetts and Illinois are the first two states. And as far as they've gotten is to teach it. So it is now in the driver's manual. Uh, it's not law and it's not tested. Uh, one of the things I'm really curious about it as an injury attorney is since this, this exists, for instance, in Illinois, and since it's taught, is it negligence not to do that when you do open the door and door somebody. I think that's a great, I think that's a great point. And, and, uh, you know, being doored by the way, uh, is one of the ways you get the most significant injuries in a bicycle crash. And the reason is being doored is the same as saying I rode my bike into a wall because that's what happens. You're going 20 miles an hour, you hit a wall. Unfortunately, some of the worst outcomes come from injuries from somebody gets doored. It's a, it's a horrific way to crash. You know, there's no good way to crash, but that's gotta be one of the worst. So I, I, I like to see that. I hope that really does take hold. I think teaching it at the driver ed level and getting people in good habits is how you have to, how you have to implement something like that. And that's the thing in, in the Netherlands, I think they made it a habit. So that's why people, they reach over, you're, you're automatically turning yourself. So you're, yeah, but once again, the Netherlands, it comes down to also being much more, there's an expectation. When you ride around a car in the Netherlands, you know, there's a lot of bikes around, you know, you, you already know to be careful where I ride my bike around where I live. And, and you know, listen, statistically, the speed limit change is a massive factor for the, the type of injury you're going to get on a bicycle crash. The data shows that the speed limit is more than 35 miles an hour. 90% of the time you get killed and the speed limit is less than 35 miles an hour, only 10% of the time you get killed. And there's probably less accidents as well with that, just because there's more time to avoid it. Right. And, and, and there's, a, there's a double benefit. One is, so normally the rides I, rode, I ride on are 35 miles an hour or less, and you get two benefits. Obviously, there's a lower speed, so the differential speed is what you care about, because people are still going to speed, right? <laughs>